Open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. And then 1 Corinthians 5, 19. But 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, and then verse 19. And normally we have a big screen behind us where you can see all this, uh, the verses, but today we don't have that. You're going to have to look it up in your Bibles. This is God's word. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then verse 19. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory and we thank you for being such an awesome God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that not only are you here with us, your presence is always with your people, but you laid down your very life and then you conquered death itself. You came back to life so that you can make a way for us to be with you. And so, Lord God, you are amazing. You are awesome. And we thank you, Lord. You are here. We thank you for that amazing time of worship. Now, please speak through this word and make it so clear to us the truth of your resurrection, what you did for us. It is a personal thing that you did, not just a gener general, vague, out there thing, but you did it for us right here. And so, Lord God, thank you, Lord. Make that known today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, thank you guys so much for joining us today. I appreciate you guys making the time. And so I want to respect your time and just get straight to the point. But why should we care about the resurrection? Okay, why does it even matter? Why are we even here today celebrating? Because for Christians, that is what Easter is all about. Okay, Easter is not about middle-aged men in bunny costumes passing out chocolate eggs to small children. To be honest, that's a terrifying picture. Don't even know how that got started. But that is not what Easter is about. But for billions of Christians around the world, Easter is only about one thing. It is about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen? You don't have to say amen yet. But I'm going to try to get you to say it later on. <laughs> but so what? Who cares? Why should we care about that? Why should we care about the resurrection, especially in our modern day when there has been scientific breakthrough after scientific breakthrough? Even just this past week, I shared this with my wife, but there was this new breakthrough that happened. You might have heard of it, but they took the skin cells of a 53-year-old woman and they transformed it, almost like magic. But they used some stem cells and they reprogrammed it genetically to become 23-year-old skin cells. Now, before you get too excited, and start grabbing your phones, they did say that those new revitalized cells are more cancerous. So you gotta, I guess you got to choose between youth or cancer, but they have more work to do. But more and more, it looks like that fountain of youth is getting within reach. So in this kind of modern era, why should we even care about the resurrection? Okay, who cares about this? Well, the resurrection that someone in the past died and then literally came back to life, as strange as it sounds, if this event happened, I'm talking about literally, bodily, in space and time, if it actually happened, and this is what the Bible says, 
then some of the biggest questions in life get answered. Okay, what do I mean? Questions like, is there life after death? Is there a God? Was Jesus God? Which religion is the true religion? Can I be forgiven for all the wrongs I've done? Does God care for me? Those are some pretty big questions, right? At some point in your life, you might actually wonder these things and look for answers, kind of groping in the dark. Well, I'm here to tell you that the resurrection has answers for each and every one of those questions. In one fell swoop, it can answer all of those questions, or at least give you a high probability in answering all of those questions. And you know what? I think God actually designed it that way. He wanted it to be that way. I believe God wanted to rest the credibility of the entire Bible. Can you please hear what I'm saying? He wanted to place the entire credibility of the Bible, the entire credibility of Jesus' life, the entire Christian movement, the answers to the entire set of questions I just mentioned. He wanted to rest all of that upon a single historical event that we can know happened or not. Does that make sense? God intentionally did it that way, I believe. And this is what makes Christianity so different from every other religion on the planet. But no other religion bases its very existence upon a single historical event that can be verified as true or false. No other religion does that. I mean, there are a lot of things that Muhammad did, Buddha did, Joseph Smith did, L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology did. And yet, there's no single event in any one of their lives that you could pull out, and when you pull it out, the entire religion that they started collapses. There's no religion like that. And the reason why is because their religions were founded on a lot of different things that were subjective, that they experienced and they alone experienced. So, for example, how do you prove that someone's vision or someone's enlightened experience happened or not? How can you know that? You can't know that. For example, how can you know or not know that last night an alien visited me in a dream and gave me the sermon to preach today? Okay, how can you know that? Okay, if I told you that, an alien gave it to me, I mean, there's no way for you to prove it or not. It's like, okay, very weird. I'm never coming back, but, but okay, right? You can't prove that or disprove it. And why is that? Those are all subjective experiences. But Jesus Christ coming back to life after a public execution in the city of Jerusalem, by the Romans, in the first century, that can be known. That can be tested. You can know if that happened or not. Why? Because that is an objective historical event, not some subjective experience that somebody had while they were asleep. And that's why the Bible calls Jesus' resurrection proof. Did you know that? God calls that proof. Acts 17.31 for God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's talking about Jesus. He set a time to judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed, Jesus. And then listen. He has given proof of this. How? To all men by raising him from the dead. The Bible calls that proof. The resurrection is proof. How do you know Jesus is from God? How do you know he's coming back? How do you know all this is true? God says, I give you proof. So it's not true. A lot of atheists like to say, well, Christianity is just built on faith and you just got to just believe something you have no evidence for. That's not what God says. I've given you proof. I raised my son from the dead, historically, objectively, bodily. Someone once said, if you want to destroy Christianity, you only have to do one thing, destroy Jesus' resurrection. I think God designed it that way. That's all you have to do. You want to get rid of Christianity once and for all? You're tired of this? 
Just prove to everybody Jesus didn't rise from the dead. The whole thing will fall apart. Paul pretty much said the same thing. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are to be pitied more than anyone. Why did he say that? Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you are basing your entire life, including Paul, on a lie. This whole thing is a hoax. So why should we care about the resurrection? Well, I think one answer is it supports everything. It's the pillar that supports everything, including the biggest answers, or I should say the questions, the answers to the biggest questions in life. So before we end and go get lunch, because you're like, okay, great. Thank you for answering that. <laughs> I have a few more reasons why we should care about the resurrection. So yes, that's one major reason we should care. It supports everything. The whole Christian faith rests on it. All the biggest questions in life are answered through it. But here are some more reasons. Okay, I want to mention three. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about some reasons we should care about the resurrection. First, there are historical reasons. So he mentions that. Second, there are spiritual reasons. When I say spiritual, I don't mean like, woo. I just mean things having to do with the soul. That's one definition of spiritual. But we should care about the resurrection because of things related to our soul. And then third, there are personal reasons why you should care about the resurrection. So first, historical reasons. Okay, Paul points to this in 1 Corinthians 15. But in verses 4 and 8 through 8, Paul said, Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, the twelve disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul said, I saw Jesus risen from the dead. So for Paul and all the other New Testament writers, Jesus' resurrection was not a personal belief. That's how the majority of the world sees this. Oh, you Christians believe that because that's just your personal belief. Not according to Paul. Paul says, this is not my personal belief. This was a public historical event. In fact, 500 or more people saw him raised from the dead. And by the way, most of them are still alive. I think that's an invitation to go check it out. It was a public historical event. Now, I'm not saying that this is proof that Jesus rose from the dead. All I'm saying is Paul was convinced this is not a personal belief. This was a public, historical event. Now, I know there are some radical skeptics out there who might say, well, I mean, who was Paul? Yeah, how do we know that he even existed? How, how do we even know that he wrote 1 Corinthians? And so it's kind of easy to throw those kind of grenades, but they never detonate. And the reason is because pretty much every historian, Christian and non-Christian, Every textual scholar who has studied these ancient manuscripts, Christian and non-Christian, they all acknowledge, no, Paul was real. He existed. They all acknowledge he wrote 1 Corinthians. They debate other letters he wrote, but they don't debate this one. And they all acknowledge 1 Corinthians was written not long after Jesus' death. Everybody acknowledges that, pretty much. Christian and non-Christian historians. So you can find that online very easily. Don't take my word for it. So Paul, who existed who wrote 1 Corinthians not long after Jesus' death, said the resurrection is not just something I believe. This was a public, historical event. And why does that matter? Well, like I said before, 
if Jesus' resurrection was a public historical event, then something wonderful happens. You can investigate it. You can look into it. You don't have to just take someone else's word for it. Don't even take my word for it. You can see if it happened or not. In the same way, you can look into if George Washington really chopped down that cherry tree or if Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address. You can look into these things. And you should want to know if this happened or not. Why? Because again, if the resurrection really happened, I'm talking about an actual raising back from the dead, then everything changes. Everything's different. So then how do you begin to investigate something like this? How do you begin to look into the resurrection as a historical event? Well, one of the best ways I've seen people do it is by starting with known historical facts that undergird Jesus' resurrection. And these are historical facts that not only Christians affirm, Christian historians, but even non-Christian. So I think that's a great place to start because even non-Christian historians I'm talking about secular scholars. They teach in secular universities. They don't believe the Bible is the word of God. They do not believe Jesus is the son of God. They are highly skeptical of every miracle in the Bible. They don't believe in miracles. And yet even they affirm these historical facts, which undergird the resurrection. So I think that's a great place to start. So what are these facts? Well, there are four, and I don't have time to get really in depth into all this. I mean, we're sitting in a park. We're about to have a barbecue. <laughs> so I'm just going to briefly mention okay, what these facts are. And by the way, I'm very thankful to William Lane Craig. He was one of my professors at Talbot Seminary. Uh, very, very smart. Really, really deep. But I'm thankful for him because he really laid out these four facts into one single argument. I've heard bits and pieces of them over the years from different people. But, but Craig really laid it all out into a single argument. So a lot of this comes from him. But here's the four facts. Again, non-Christian, Christian, historians all accept this. And they just happen to undergird the resurrection. Fact number one, Jesus' death and burial in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Jesus dying and then being buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Everybody accepts that. Okay, why do historians accept it? Well, there are multiple different ancient documents that are independent from one another. They affirm that Jesus was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. We're not going to get into those documents. You can look them up online. Don't take my word for it. But this is one reason. Another reason is there is no competing burial story on record anywhere. They don't exist. Okay, if this really didn't happen, if something else happened, then you would probably expect that that other story would pop up. No, 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 this didn't happen. That's a legend. He didn't get buried in Joseph's tomb. There's this other, no, there is no other competing story anywhere. Here's another reason. No, or I'm sorry, the early disciples or no early disciple would create this burial story, which would put Joseph of Arimathea in a good light. And why would they not do this? It's because Joseph was a part of the religious elite. And who are they? They, they killed Jesus. So they unjustly killed Jesus, and why would you want to put one of them in a good light? So no disciple of Jesus would want to do that. And yet they said this happened. Why? Because it probably did. So why is this fact so important? Okay, why do we even consider this? Well, it's important because, please think about this. If the disciples pinned a location for Jesus' body within Jerusalem, the city where he was publicly executed, if they're going around telling everybody 
where his body is. And this is a very well-known location. Then anybody who's a skeptic, when they started preaching the resurrection, would go there and look for the body. And so why would they do that? Why would they jeopardize the Christian movement right from the beginning? Why would they say this if it wasn't true? And so this is probably true. This is most likely true. Almost every historian affirms that Jesus was actually buried there. Okay, fact number two. The testimony of Jesus' tomb being empty. So this is another thing that everybody affirms. And why do almost every historian affirm, again, Christian and non-Christian, that, yeah, his tomb was empty? Why do they say that? Well, it's very connected closely to the first fact. But if Jesus was in fact buried in Joseph's tomb in Jerusalem, and that's the same city where the Christian movement began, which was all based on Jesus rising from the dead, then historians have to conclude, well, then the tomb must have been empty. Because you can't go around preaching somebody rose from the dead and start a worldwide movement if the body is rotting in the tomb, right? And so historians, they just take the logical step and go, well, the body was empty. I mean, the tomb was empty. That's how Christianity started in the very city he was buried. It must have been empty. Here's another reason historians accept that the tomb was empty. Jewish leaders from their very beginning never denied that the tomb was empty. Again, if the body was there, then you would think there would be this other story of the body really being there. But the Jewish leaders never denied it. Instead, they made up other stories. Well, the disciples stole the body. So you see evidence of that. So these are just a few reasons why historians accept the empty tomb. But here's another fact that supports the resurrection. Okay, just please stick with me. I'm going to run through the last two quickly. But number three, the belief among Jesus' disciples very early on that Jesus rose and appeared to them. That Jesus actually rose and appeared to them. The disciples believed that. And almost every historian acknowledges that. Now I'm not saying secular historians believe that Jesus actually appeared to them, but they do affirm that, yeah, they believe that that happened. Okay, we don't think it actually happened, but they believed that that happened. And why would historians acknowledge that? Well, again, because of multiple independent testimonies saying that disciples, they all almost unanimously believed that Jesus rose and came to them. They all believed it. Again, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said Jesus appeared to more than 500 at one time. Okay, and he said, most of them are still alive. That's an invitation. Go check it out. If you don't believe me, go check it out. Talk to them. They're mostly still alive. Again, that doesn't prove that Jesus rose from the dead, but it does prove that Paul believed it. Paul's confident it happened. Another reason the disciples really believe Jesus came back to them, rose from the dead, are Jesus' own brothers, his brothers. But his brothers did not believe Jesus was the Son of God. And that should be pretty easy to understand. Okay, most of us have brothers here. How many of you guys have this growing sense that your brother is the Son of God? Raise your hand. I want to talk to you after service. <laughs> but how many of you guys really believe every day you look at your brother and you're like, man, I think you're the Son of God. So we know, okay, this is very easy to understand. They did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Say, no, not you, bro, not you. And yet, after... Jesus was publicly executed, something happened, they began to all worship him as Lord. They began to worship him as Lord. And not only that, but James, Jesus' younger brother, was even martyred. He was put to death for preaching that his brother, Jesus, is Lord. Think about that. 
See, what do you say at a funeral like that? <laughs> this man thought his brother was Lord and he got killed. So what could possibly explain that? You need to have a better explanation than, oh, well, they just got brainwashed. They really believe that message. No. Nobody just eventually comes to believe that their brother is God. Nobody comes to believe that. So the fact that the original disciples unanimously believe that they saw the risen Jesus, which even historians who aren't Christian affirm, that supports Jesus' resurrection. And then number four, fact number four, the original disciples believe that Jesus rose from the dead even though they had every reason not to. And even secular historians affirm that. Yeah, they had no reason to affirm this. They had no reason to go around Jerusalem proclaiming this. Why would they do this? Humanly speaking, the disciples had no reason to start proclaiming that Jesus, their leader, died publicly. Everyone saw that and then came back to life. Historians acknowledge, yeah, they had no reason. Why? No Jew had a concept of a crucified Messiah. No, no Jew saw their Messiah, once he comes, is going to get captured, judged like a criminal, and hung on a cross. Nobody thought that. The Messiah was supposed to be a spiritual leader and also a political conqueror. He's supposed to take over and take charge, not get killed. Not only that, but Jesus getting publicly crucified meant Jesus was under the curse of God. That's what the Bible says in the Old Testament. Anybody hung on a tree is cursed by God. And so there's no reason for the disciples to go around and now say, you know that guy that we were following, our leader? He was cursed by God. He was cursed by God. But then guess what? He came back to life. I mean, there's no reason for them to put themselves out like that and begin to start a movement with somebody who was cursed by God. Also, Jesus' crucifixion meant that the religious leaders were right. See, the whole time they were saying, Jesus, he's a heretic. He's a heretic. He's a liar. He's a phony. Don't follow him. The whole time they were saying that. And so when Jesus finally got crucified, that would have been vindication. Yeah, see? We were right the whole time. And so there's no reason for the disciples now in that kind of environment to now step out and say, hey, remember us? The cult members? Following that cult leader? Well, he came back to life. I and mean, there's no reason for them to do that. But here's the most obvious reason why they had no reason to start preaching the gospel, proclaiming his resurrection. is because as they began to do it, they got into a whole lot of trouble. They got into a whole lot of trouble. Ultimately, every disciple, all original 12, paid for that message with their life. They all died for that message. And some people might say, well, they died for it because they really believed in it. Yeah, some people, they give their lives for things that they really believe in, if, even if they're wrong. You know, many years ago, we had some jihadi terrorists uh, do terrible things in this country. They killed themselves along with a lot of other people. So yeah, people do that. But here's the difference. Okay, don't miss this point, please. People will believe all kinds of things and even lay their lives down for all kinds of things. But here's the difference. The original disciples, if they were the ones who made up this whole story that Jesus rose from the dead, because they're the only ones who would have known, right? They're the ones who stole the body, right? If they were the ones who made up this whole story, then they were in a unique position to be the only ones to know if Jesus' resurrection was a lie or not. See, we're not in that position. We just have to believe what they tell us. But they would be the only ones to know if this was really a lie or not. And here's the problem. I like how one scholar put it. Liars make terrible martyrs. 
What that means is nobody dies for a lie. I mean, you'll die for something you believe is true, even if it's not true. But who dies for something you know is not true? Right? Who does that? We know this isn't true, but I'm going to die for it. Why? Why? They were in that unique position, unlike us. They knew. If they're the ones who made this whole thing up, they knew if this was true or not. And yet all of them died for it. All of them. These are some serious, serious things we need to deal with. How do you explain this? So these are all historical facts that both Christian and non-Christian historians affirm. Now don't misunderstand. Non-Christian historians, they don't draw the same conclusions I've been drawing that this supports the resurrection. They don't draw that conclusion. But what they do is they just kind of shrug their shoulders and they say, well, we don't know. We don't have an explanation. Or they come up with other wild theories to try to explain. But Dr. Craig, who teaches a lot on this, I remember one time he shared that he was debating this professor who really, really knew these facts very well. He did his whole PhD on it. He was debating this man. And this man, because he knew the facts and he couldn't argue against these four facts, he ended up arguing, well, I have an explanation for these facts. Jesus had a twin brother. <laughs> and so this was a real theory he came up with. And right after Jesus was crucified and then his body was taken away, the twin brother showed up. And then he began to act like the Jesus and all the disciples followed this twin brother. And so that was a theory he had. And then Craig, he gently basically said, nonsense, right? He, he proved that wrong. But, but this is what people resort to. But most people don't go there. They just shrug their shoulders. We don't know. How do we explain all this? We don't know. And so as you begin to look at this, there are good reasons why we should care about the resurrection. If you care about truth, if this really happened or not, if you care about the greatest thing in the history of the world that changes your life, that changes everything in our lives, then you will care about this. So that was our longest point, but historical reasons why we should care. Okay, number two, there are also spiritual reasons why we should care about the resurrection. Okay, there are spiritual reasons. Now again, when I say spiritual, I'm talking about things that have to do with our soul. And here's what we need to know about our souls. The Bible says God has placed eternity in our hearts. Okay, what that means is we can all imagine living forever. Okay, I used to like fantasy books and I used to like uh, reading them. And inevitably, in every fantasy novel, you're always going to read about some eternal land that the characters are going to go to, where they're going to live forever and ever and ever. But everybody can imagine that. Everybody longs for that. I remember a famous director reflecting on his own death. He said, I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. Yeah, I just want to keep living in my apartment. I don't want to live on in people's memories. And so we all have this understanding. We, we could live forever, can't we? I want to live forever. And yet here's the harsh reality. The harshest reality is that we will all die. I know we don't think about it often, but that is the truth. Every single person here and watching online, yes, you too, will face death. And the day of our death is drawing closer and closer. And that is just the reality. Every day that you go to bed and wake up, you are one day closer to your death. That is the simple truth. I'm not trying to scare anyone or be offensive. That is just truth, isn't it? We will all die, some sooner, some later, but it's coming. That day is coming. In fact, recently, just a month and a half ago, two months ago, a precious friend of mine, a sister that I knew for about 20 plus years, much older than myself, but she passed away very suddenly. I didn't know she was going to pass away. Otherwise, I would have made a bigger deal the last time I saw her. 
But I just said, hey, see you later. And the next thing I know, she passed away. And so this is the harsh reality of our souls, is that we will all die. You know, last year I mentioned a podcast I listened to. It was by a professor named Clay Jones. But he was talking about a book that he wrote called Immortal, but he was talking about death in that book and in that podcast. But he talked about how whenever people hear about what he was writing about on death, they almost instinctively go, oh, I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of dying. And Dr. Jones, he said, in one sense, they're telling the truth. They're not afraid. Why? Because they are constantly, all of life is about distracting them away from that. I don't want to think about that. I'm not afraid of that. And why are they not afraid? Because it's all about distraction. So they don't want to think about it. It's all abstract. Okay, it's all just out there. It's things that happen to other people, but never to me. And so they're not afraid. They're telling the truth until you get a call from your doctor. And then suddenly that reality crashes in. Oh my gosh, death is real. So people, don't, they don't tend to think about death at all, or at least not as a concrete, guaranteed reality. And this is why entertainers and prof uh, professional athletes get paid so much, according to Jones, is because they are paid millions and millions of dollars to distract us from the harshest reality in our lives. They do the most important work of distraction. This is why people are always so surprised when you hear that some people that you know in the media passed away. It's like, what? That person passed away? Well, why are we always surprised? I mean, everyone dies. Well, it's because we're always distracting ourselves away from it. So people are constantly in denial over death. They distract themselves. It's an abstract idea. And yet, here's the irony. Even though we avoid it, we ignore it, we deny it, we are driven by it. It drives our lives. And what do I mean by that? How many guys go to Whole Foods? <laughs> how many guys search things online, how to be healthy? Yeah, how many guys go to the doctor religiously? Why are we doing that? I thought you're not afraid of death. Well, it's because subconsciously we are driven by this reality. I don't want to die. I want to live as long as possible. So you keep doing these things, believing that I can live just a little bit longer. And yet, again, here's the harsh reality, brothers and sisters. Death always wins. Death will always win. I remember hearing a Silicon Valley billionaire boasting one time, but he said, I'm a billionaire. I have unlimited resources, so I'm going to live a very long time. I'm going to live to 160 years old. And I remember hearing him going, I doubt it. <laughs> but even if you do, I'm sorry, but you're still going to die. <laughs> you're still going to die. At 161, you will, be, you will die. And so people, they distract themselves from death. They are driven by the fear of death. They will push the boundaries of science to try to overcome death. I remember watching this documentary one time, how the ultra-rich are trying to live forever. Very interesting. Well, what are the ultra-rich doing? I mentioned this last year, but they try to freeze themselves. Some people are freezing themselves in liquid nitrogen. That hasn't worked out for anyone. Scientists have found that when you get frozen at those degrees, your body cracks. Sounds very painful. Some are trying to upload their minds onto computers so that they could live on within computers or subconscious minds. That could happen one day, but how many of us want to live on in a computer? Others simply believe that, well, yeah, death is real, you're right, but after that, nothing. Nothing will happen. I remember the atheist Sam Harris saying this, but he said, the good news of atheism, the gospel of atheism, is essentially nothing. That nothing happens after death. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fear. When after you die, you are returned to that nothingness that you were before you were born. And so for him, that, comf that comforts him. 
And that sounds comforting. But to really think about that, if you go out of existence, all the things that you have done in this life, all the friends that you have made, all the wonderful things that you have achieved, to one day have to leave it all behind and poof, you're gone. How comforting really is that? I don't know. But here's a bigger problem. There's no evidence for this. He has zero evidence to back up that after you die, poof, you go out of existence. What does he have to prove that? Who has died and come back and said, yep, there's nothing. There's nothing. I've seen it. There's not one shred of evidence. Earlier, I gave you four different evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there is not even one piece of evidence for this gospel that Harris is talking about. So then, in the face of this kind of reality, I mean, what can we do? Okay, what, what can our souls do? Because death always wins, right? It always wins. And you can deny it for a while, but it is going to crash into our lives. And we will face it. So what can we do? Well, I want to encourage you today, because this is a good day. This is a joyful day. But look to the one thing that has conquered death. Amen? Just look to the one thing that has overcome death, which is Jesus' resurrection. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And when he did that, he not only conquered death in general in this generic sense, but the Bible says his resurrection was God's validation that Jesus conquered our death. He didn't just conquer his own death. He conquered our death. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will raise also us up through his power. They're connected. So this brings us to The Bible says in our passage, 1 Corinthians 15, when Jesus died and rose again, he took away the sting of death. Yeah, death hurts. The Bible acknowledges that. The Bible is brutally honest. But there is a sting of death. What is that? Well, Jesus took away this sting because the sting is the judgment that God has upon all of our sins. You know, all of us, we all know that we don't measure up, right, in some way. You know, as I get older and older, I remember when I was younger, I used to always look at circumstances and people around me going, oh, gosh, I struggle so much with you, right? And I, and I don't like you, and, and you're what brings me down. But as I get older and older, you know what? The struggle is me. I am what brings me down. And so what I'm saying is that as you get older, you begin to realize, you know what? I, I don't measure up. You know, there are so many things that I know I should do, I don't do. If there are standards that I should follow, I don't follow them. And so there is a sting of sin, right? But it's not only just about guilt and feeling bad, but God will judge all of that. God will judge us for not measuring up, for sinning against him. And so that is the sting of death. The moment we die, all that judgment floods into our lives like a dam being broken, water rushing in, judgment floods in. And yet when Jesus died upon the cross, he took all that judgment away. That flow was diverted away from us onto him. And then when he got raised from the dead, God said, approved. See, if Jesus' death was payment for our sin, Jesus' resurrection was the receipt. That was the receipt proving that the payment went through. You know, these days I always want to get a receipt because you never know what's going to happen, right, in this day and age, our economy. But you want a receipt to prove that you pay for something. Well, how do we know that Jesus' payment went through? The resurrection. God raised him from the dead. 
So what Jesus paid for you went through. But that is not all. Paul says when Jesus rose again, he swallowed up death in victory. And so this is talking about a complete and total destruction of death. Remember earlier I took pains to try to tell you something you already know, <laughs> that death always wins? It always wins. Nobody here will beat death. Nobody. And yet the Bible says something amazing. Jesus beat death. He swallowed up death in victory. That is a total and utter destruction of death. Jesus beat death. Amen? Death always wins. You will always die. I will die. Everybody we know will die. That day is coming, and yet Jesus overcame death. In other words, once Jesus rose again, he will never die again. He will never die again. Other people who were resurrected before Jesus' resurrection, they died again. So, for example, Lazarus, the famous story of Lazarus, Jesus raised him up, and Lazarus was like, no, don't do that, because now i got to die again, right? I mean, I'm glad I'm here, but i got to die again. Jesus raised the little girl in the Gospels. She's going to die again. She did die again. But Jesus' resurrection was different because everyone else who was raised back to life in the Bible died again. But Jesus, when he was raised, he was raised to never die again. So that is Jesus' resurrection. And please hear me, brothers and sisters. The Bible is so clear. Because Jesus rose again from the dead to never die again, if you are in Christ, you will die and rise again to never die again. You will be raised again from the dead to never die again. Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that Jesus as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We too might walk in newness of life. So this is glorious, brothers and sisters, but these are very, very personal things that I'm sure you care about. You care about your life. You care about the day of your death. If you just think about it for a moment, that day is coming. What are you going to do? How are you going to prepare? Well, the Bible says very clearly, look to Jesus' resurrection. Okay, please don't leave today without looking to Jesus' resurrection. Look to Jesus' resurrection. But that death that I've been talking about is not just when we reach the end of our lives, but that death is even during life. It's even during the life that we live right now. But I remember this past week I was listening to a sermon by a pastor, but he was talking about how in the Bible, the wilderness is a paradigm for our lives. And what he meant is, is that the wilderness is the clearest picture of what our life is like. And the wilderness, I'm not talking about Oregon. Okay, we're not talking about Oregon. The wilderness in the Bible is the desert. We're talking about Death Valley. And when you go to Death Valley, what is out there? Nothing. Okay, Death Valley cannot sustain life. Yeah, all the things that you need to live are not there. And so what the Bible says very clearly is that in this life, there are many things that your soul needs to live, and yet they're not here. They're not here in this life. It is a wilderness. And so I'm talking about things like love, unconditional love. I'm talking about having true fulfillment that will last for all eternity. I'm talking about true joy, true peace. I'm talking about forgiveness, freedom from condemnation. I'm talking about facing death with joy and peace. We're talking about all these things that we desperately need. You won't find it here. Why? Because this is a wilderness. And so what ends up happening is because people, they don't realize that, they make assumptions that are wrong. They go, no, this is not a wilderness. This is a, a garden, right? I mean, I love life. This is a garden. So then they go after things, and then disappointment comes. Another disappointment comes. They become angry. And so even the best people doing the best things, living in the best families, reaching the highest things in this life, what do you see? Talk to them. 
I've known some people, they've achieved amazing things, and yet they're still disappointed. They're disappointed. Some of them are even angry. Again, why? It's because in this life, they see it as a garden. There are things I need, and I'm going to get them, and yet the Bible says, no, it's a wilderness. It can't sustain the things that you need. It can't offer them. And yet I love what this pastor said, but he said, but yet in the Bible, there's something wonderful. But in that wilderness, in that desert, there's a rock. There was always a rock. And what is that rock? That rock is Jesus Christ, right? That rock is Jesus. And not only Jesus, but it is Jesus dead and raised back to life. That is the rock. So there's a rock in the wilderness, and upon that rock, everything that you need in your souls for your souls will be met. And so this is the testimony of Easter, amen? And so I just want to just draw this to a close now. I want to invite us to bow our heads. But let's just come before the Lord right now. But I just want to spend a moment. To just turn our eyes upon Jesus, the rock his death, and his resurrection. So let's just come before the Lord right now.